We're starting a new chapter. Chapter 8. It's with sorrow that we leave chapter 7. Actually, uh, you know, there were many, many more things that I wanted to draw out of the chapter and uh, to talk about, and more particularly those things related to the little horn or the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist as we began last time and talk about uh, how that personage has been identified historically. And there are lots of different uh, applications to who, in fact, uh, the little horn might, in, might be in history. Uh, both in in past history and in the future. However, there are so many options. There are some two or three major ones that I thought um, I would move on to Chapter 8. It's just uh, just too confusing, actually. Uh, And it creates more problems than it's worth. And since the scriptures do not particularly identify uh, a person uh, that we would know and be able to name, I thought I would be purely speculating, and so I didn't want to lead you off into that arena of speculation. So we're going to begin chapter 8 this morning, and uh, just going to, we're going to do kind of a beginning introduction, uh, initial overview, and then we'll begin to dive into the chapter in the succeeding weeks. Uh, there, again, just like chapter 7, chapter 8 uh, has much uh, to uh, discuss and to understand. And again, it'll focus on another little horn, Uh, however, it's not going to be the same little horn that we saw in chapter 7. But nonetheless, that language is still used. Read with me, if you will, we just read the chapter together, familiarize ourselves, kind of get the lay of the land, if you will. In the third year of King Belshazzar, his reign, I, Daniel, had a vision. This is one after the one I'd already had and had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other horn, and uh, the other... Let me do this again. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in his place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him 
and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is, is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given to you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. And then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Within the annals of world history, the Jewish people are one of the most fascinating peoples on the face of the earth. Among all races, they have survived unbelievable atrocities, holocaust after holocaust, with one tyrant after another attempting to uh, literally exterminate them. The tiny nation of Israel has been invaded time and time again, conquered, and then survivors repeatedly exiled all over the world. The question is, why why is this one nation constantly the source of all of this violent attention? For a lot of reasons, but one particularly, when you read the Bible, and only from a biblical perspective can you understand, this is God's chastening of them. They're, They're called the chosen people. They were God's elect in a very real sense. Because of their continual rebellion, when you read all the prophets, they talk about God is going to discipline you, God is going to chasten you 
unless you repent, repent, repent. And, of course, they don't. And so God does. He brings nation after nation upon them. Early in their history, as they were formed, they, they, after Solomon's reign, they, the nation broke into two sections, uh, what's known as the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. Northern Kingdom was composed of ten tribes, and the Southern Kingdom, two tribes. And the Northern Kingdom was particularly idolatrous and rebellious, and so God, God chastened them, and he brought the Assyrians, who were among the fiercest people on the face of the earth at that point in history. He brought the Assyrians down from the north upon them, and, and like a razor scraped them from the earth. No one knows where those ten tribes are, or if any of the remnants exist today. We get the name Jew from those who were in, in Judah. And it was a couple hundred years later that the southern kingdom of Judah was particularly rebellious also. And in fact, Isaiah says uh, that they were worse than their older sister Israel. And that was when God brought Babylon in to uh, literally destroy Judah, destroy Jerusalem, the temple, uh, kill off many of the men and carry the, uh, the remnant off into exile. So we see this over and over and over. If you don't have Bible history, then you're, you're, you're confused. Why, why, is this, why are the Jews always the source of, of all this, uh, all this uh, attack and uh, um, attempts to exterminate them? It's God's judgment. It's God's judgment in their rebellion. He calls them himself. He says they're a stiff-necked people. I'm not being pejorative here. It's not my point. I, I, I don't want to communicate that. What I want to just tell you is this, is this is what we're dealing with when we see the Bible. And this is, in a very real sense, Israel represents individual people today. And, and we know that people can be stiff-necked and rebellious, don't we? And they set themselves up for judgment. They set themselves up for God's hand of chastisement. And even some of us, we can get a little stiff-necked, can't we? We get a little rebellious, dig our heels in. We can say no. We can seek after our own way. And that's why repentance is so key to the life of the people of God. There isn't a single one of us in this room this morning that doesn't need to repent of something. We're not perfect people. The Bible says, uh, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And uh, though we may aspire to that, none of us loves him with our whole heart. None of us worships him with everything we are, our entire being. Truth be known, we love him with part of our heart. And, and, and even then, it's, it, it varies among us. The very best of us will not love him with our whole heart. The very best of us... Uh, the things that we battle with in our life. We give in to. This is why we're dependent upon his power, as that song said. It's his power at work in us that changes us. So Israel really does represent, in a lot of ways, individuals. God's working with the nation. He works with people. And so this tiny nation of Israel, again, has been invaded time and time again. And yet the Jews as a people, the Jews as a nation, still survive. They still exist. The question is, how? 
in spite of all the attempts by man to exterminate them, how do they still exist? What do you think? What would you say? Yeah, the grace of God. I mean, you and I exist because of the grace of God, don't we? I don't know about you, but I should be dead. I mean, there are things in my life I should, I should not be standing here today. I should, I should have been dead 40-plus years ago. Foolish stuff. But God has chosen in his infinite grace and wisdom and mercy to preserve us. It's God's grace. It's God's mercy. It's God's power by which they still survive. Millennia ago, thousands of years ago, uh, God chose one man. Do you remember that man's name? It begins with A. Abraham. He chose one man, Abraham. And he wasn't a Jew. Abraham was, was also an uncircumcised Gentile idolater. He lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. They worshiped the moon god. And yet God communicated to him that he, he was choosing him and he wanted him to, he was going to make out of him a, 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 a mighty nation, a people uh, whose descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the grains of sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And he promised Abraham, he made him a promise that, that through him and through his descendants, all the world would be blessed, all peoples would be blessed, all the earth would be blessed. That the, the Jews would become the chosen people. God chose them. But he chose them not because they were so special in and of themselves. He didn't raise up this nation uh, just for them, the, their own benefit. He, he had a purpose for them, just like he has a purpose for you and I. He raises us up. He raises up a hope chapel for a purpose. We fit into God's economy of things. And... and our challenge is to get our eyes off of ourselves. Our challenge is to say, Lord, what is my purpose? What have you called me to? Where do I fit in to your will? Israel was chosen to be two things, to be the avenue through which the word of God would come into the world, both in propositional form and physical form. The word of God became flesh. Didn't come through the Gentile nations. He came through Judah. He came through the Jews. The word of God, the law of God, the Mosaic law, the prophets, everything that we have today came to us through the avenue of the Jews. They were chosen for that purpose. In fact, Jesus accentuates that in John's gospel in chapter 4 when he has that conversation with a woman at the well. You recall that? And they're discussing, and she's asking him, in, in, uh, when the Messiah comes, will they worship up in there at Mount Gerizim, where she was up in Samaria, or will they worship down in Jerusalem? He said, neither place. And then he says to her an astounding thing. He says, salvation is of the Jews. What, what does he mean? He means that, he's, that the Jewish people are the avenue through which God's purpose would be accomplished in terms of revealing his word and revealing uh, the Son of God himself. And although many of the Jews have failed to follow the Lord down through the millennia, <coughs> excuse me, some, some have been genuine in their faith. Daniel for one. Abraham for one. Isaiah, Elijah. 
These people have been genuine in their faith. They've been believing and trusting in God and trusting in his word. And because of these true believers, the Lord has always miraculously saved the Jewish people from extermination. He's always saved a remnant. You read about that in the book of Romans, that the remnant will be saved. Those who will continue to persevere in faith. And God always will do this. All because of his wonderful promise to Abraham, his grace to Abraham, and his descendants. See, this is not God's work and his accomplishments in and through our lives and through people groups like like Israel. is not because we're so cute. You know that, right? It's simply because of his choice and his grace. We do not deserve any good thing. That, That is the bottom line. Redemption, this whole whole idea of redemption, think about that. All that redemption speaks of and includes, that whole idea. But what does it result in? What, what ought redemption result in in our life, do you think? I want to suggest to you, redemption ought to result in a radical abandonment to Christ. Just like before redemption, we are radically his enemies. We don't want anything to do with him. There is no way. And once you are redeemed, once you're born again, that ought to result in a complete 180-degree change. You ought to be radically, radically abandoned to him. That's how you mark your life. That's how you know you're a Christian. I am radically different. I am not the same person I used to be. My whole purpose is, is not my own personal wants and desires anymore. My whole purpose is to be radically abandoned to him. God, your will be done. Isn't that what we've been talking about? God, your will be done. And yet we find ourselves caught up in our own personal issues and what I want. And I want to feel safe. I want to feel comfortable. I want, I want to be self-realized. I, you know, No, you're missing it. You're missing it entirely. The whole point of redemption is for a radical abandonment to him. Lord, your will. Here I am. Take me. Use me. Send me to Nepal. Or wherever. Let me radically be radically abandoned to my family, to, to, to my spouse in, in, in service to you. Zip my mouth if I'm complaining and whining. If I'm giving in to my, to my humanness and my weakness, I repent of those things. In the days of Daniel, Judah had been totally destroyed. Jerusalem had been totally destroyed. The Jews were now living as exiles in Babylon. We read about that in, when we started the book of Daniel. These people had lost everything. They've been stripped of everything. Families, homes, wealth, property, uh, community. Their very nation has been decimated. Worst of all, they have lost the very point of their identity, the Temple of Solomon. That has been totally destroyed. All the implements of worship has been carried off by Nebuchadnezzar. And they're now his possession. 
Everything that gave their life meaning and purpose and orientation, everything was destroyed. Just think about your own life. Some of us have experienced something akin to that in terms of losing things and losing everything and losing a person, something significant in our life. And, and it disorients you, doesn't it? It creates confusion. You wonder, well, where am I? What's going on? What's going to happen in the future? If you, under, if you understand that just on this, on this micro-scale level in our own personal lives, you, you kind of have a grasp of, of what the, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, were experiencing. And this happened, boom, like a, like a, like a whirlwind just came, to, came down upon them. Most of the men had been killed in the siege of Babylon. We read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. They had been, been slaughtered. And the survivors, the exiles to Babylon, had to be gripped by a spirit of hopelessness. Hopelessness. They could only see a dark future of continued oppression and suffering under Babylonian rule. What did the future hold for these exiles? Would they even survive as a nation? Would they ever come back to Judah? Would the temple ever be rebuilt? All that they'd lost, is there any hope? Their lives had become ashes. Could there be redemption? The Jews, in particular the true believers among them, needed a word of encouragement. They needed a message of assurance from God. Does God know what's going on? Does he still have a plan? Has he abandoned them? Sometimes, you know, uh, you can feel in the midst of your life abandoned by God. If you're a true believer, you're never abandoned by God. He is always with you. He is always with you. He is always with you. Why? How can I say that? Because he said it. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. If you're a true believer... Yeah, you may have to undergo some chastisement. Yeah, you may have to go through some suffering, some trial, some difficulty. It may seem unending sometimes. But the Bible assures you again that God disciplines those he loves, chastises them. You say, what possible good is this doing? It's a faith exercise now, isn't it? Lord, I trust you. I trust you. Your will be done in my life. If Christ who suffered for us set an example for us, then we should follow in his footsteps. God used Christ mightily, didn't he? He uses us in the midst of our trials that way too. That's our hope. That's our assurance. But the Jews, especially those uh, who, were, who were believers, who were suffering along with the unbelievers, needed a message of assurance. And so, so the Lord spoke, and he spoke through Daniel to them. And he gave Daniel visions of the future. Sometimes, sometimes I, I, I've mused, I muse now and again, just sit and daydream. And there's times when I've done that that I, I, I've wondered, you know, what does the future hold? 
And I've even dared to ask God, God, would you just come down here and tell me what's going to happen in the future? That can be dangerous, you know. I'm firmly convinced that God doesn't always tell us exactly what's going to happen in our future because we probably wouldn't get up in the morning if we knew. But he does give them, he gives them a picture of the future. In chapter 7, we saw this, uh, this terrific panoramic view of history, beginning with the nation of Babylon, who had, who had carried Israel off into captivity. And that, that panoramic view of history, uh, beginning with Babylon, went clear through to uh, the uh, coming of the Ancient of Days. And where the saints are seen inheriting the kingdom with the Most High. What a marvelous picture. In other words, there, there's, there's hope. There's hope. There's a, there's, a, there's a direction. There's orientation. That was in chapter 7. It gave us this, this big, 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 big picture. Now, now, now as we move into chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, these chapters focus also on the Gentile nations, but more particularly on the Gentile nations as they relate to Israel. Israel is the key now in these latter chapters of the book of Daniel. And it was for that reason, uh, most believe, that Daniel wrote the remainder of the book in Hebrew rather than Aramaic. If you didn't know about this, the first part of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. A signal, uh, some scholars think, that it's addressed to the Gentile nations, or it relates more to the Gentile nations who would be speaking Aramaic. Beginning at chapter 8 through 12, that have more to do with Israel specifically, these chapters are written in Hebrew. So it, it, most people think that's an a, a interesting uh, signal, a change in the very, very language that's used. The visions that God gave Daniel picture clearly those rulers who deny God and trample people, both believers and unbelievers, underfoot. And down through history, many rulers have been tyrants driven by a fierce craving for power, for territory, for wealth, etc. In some instances, these rulers have been filled with a violent prejudice, an animus, a bitter hatred against a particular race or nation. This is the particular focus of Daniel's vision in chapter 8, the cruel oppression and subjection and suffering of God's people. It's interesting, I think, as a kind of a side note, that in Daniel chapter 7, when he asked the angel for the interpretation, what do these things mean? He showed particular interest in all the beasts or just some of the beasts. What was it? He only, Daniel really only wanted to know about the fourth beast, didn't he? See, he already knew about the first beast, which was Babylon. The second and third beast, he never even asked about, did he? He goes right to the fourth beast, and he says, you want to know about the fourth beast? I want to know about those ten horns, and I want to know about that little horn. Explain those things to me. He, didn't, he, he just simply ignores the second and the third beast. Well, guess what chapters, chapter 8 is all about? The second and the third beast. Daniel doesn't ask, and so God's going to show him anyway. 
they play an integral part. They fit into God's program. It would seem that Daniel is simply ignoring them, but, but God is not ignoring them. Some time ago, I suggested to you uh, that God used Babylon in his plan to chastise Israel, right? The, the second beast represented, as we see, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. How did he use the, the, that empire? How did he use the Persian Empire in the life of Israel? Do you recall? King Cyrus. King Cyrus issued an edict which allowed, what, the, the Jews to come back to, uh, to Israel, come back to Judah, and to rebuild their temple. And the third kingdom was which one? You'll see it. The Greek kingdom, the Macedonian Empire, the, the, the empire under Alexander the Great. We'll talk about that in a minute. How did God use that empire? For the language. And the fourth empire was the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire afforded what? Peace and prosperity and roads and travel and freedom. So you see how all these empires are used, in, in particular with respect to Israel, but more particularly with respect to the Messiah. God's always at work on the macro scale as well as the micro scale. So chapters 2 through 7, again, as I said, were written in Aramaic, presumably because they focused on the Gentile nations. And with the sections focused primarily on the Jews, they're written in Hebrew. Now, as we consider these things, Daniel's second vision comes, we're told, in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. The third year of Belshazzar's reign. His first vision, this is his second vision, the first vision, chapter 7, came in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So chapter 7 and chapter 8 predate chapter 5. What happens in chapter 5? You recall? That's where we meet Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is presiding over the empire of Babylon as it gets what? Destroyed, overrun, right? Belshazzar is at the end of the chapter. This, this event here happens 12 years before the destruction of Babylon. So we're still, still back there. Daniel is about 70 years old in this, at this point in history. Isn't that great to know that God can use you if you're 70? 70 plus? In the second vision, Daniel sees himself at the fortress or the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. Susa was about 200 miles east of Babylon, and it was about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf, right at the tip. The city was the capital, if you will, of Elam. It was not strategic, and it was not important to Babylon at the time. However, later, it would become one of the royal cities of the Persian Empire, and hence it is now pictured here. It's a representation of the future. It would actually become a very, very significant city to the Persians who are not yet even ruling. They're still a good 12 years away. But God gives Daniel this picture because he will also serve King Cyrus. So he will find himself in Susa. And so God shows him, he's showing him the future where he'll be. 
There are two people, by the way, two other people in the Bible, in the Old Testament history, who come from Susa. Very significant characters. Can you think of who they might be? You were here Friday. You guys were here Friday. Okay, all right. Okay, who was it, honey? Who was the first one? Esther, Esther. very good, very good. <laughs> who was the other one? I'm not telling. You're not telling. <laughs> ask, ask your partner in crime over here. <laughs> Nehemiah. <laughs> Esther, and <laughs> Esther and Nehemiah come from Susa. Because they're living under the Persian rule at that time. And you just have to go to the book of Esther and go to the book of Nehemiah. In the first chapter, first verse, you read that they do uh, emanate from Susa. Interesting. Now, in his vision, Daniel saw, first of all, a powerful ram. And this ram represented, as we read, the Medo-Persian Empire. He noticed two significant features of the ram. Number one... The ram had two long horns with one longer than the other, even though it started to grow later than the first. This refers simply to the fact that Persia was less powerful than Media, but under the leadership of Cyrus, Persia eventually conquered Media, and Cyrus united the two nations to become that great Medo-Persian empire. We saw those that Medo-Persian Empire represented in two other places in the book of Daniel. Do you recall where we saw them represented? Chapter 2 in, in the statue. And uh, the Medo-Persian Empire was represented by what? Do you recall? The arms and chests of silver. That's right. Where was the second place that we saw this second empire represented? Back in chapter 7. What was it represented by? The bear. Remember the bear that was raised up on one side, if you will, uh, and so forth? So again, now we meet this kingdom a third time here in chapter 8. Secondly, we're told that the ram was unstoppable as it charged west, north, and south. It's coming from the east. Persia is in the east. So it's charging west, north, and south. And in its terrorizing charge west, this ferocious ram conquered Babylon, Assyria, Asia Minor, and even invaded areas of Greece. Now this will bear on the goat in just a few minutes. You'll see why. To the north, the ram conquered Armenia, Scythia, and the Caspian Sea area. Moving southward, Cyrus and his successors conquered Egypt and Ethiopia. No other nation was able to withstand this powerful attack of the Medo-Persians. This terrifying beast did as it pleased, we're told. It became the largest empire up until that time in human history. It lasted approximately 200 years. It was a significant influence in the world at that time. And then verse 5 tells us, suddenly, Daniel saw in his vision a swift angry goat. 
one with a very prominent and large horn. This angry goat, we're told, represented uh, the Macedonian Empire, Greece, and Alexander the Great. We met this animal or this empire two times also before. We met him in chapter 2, do you recall? In that vision of that, that statue. This, this was represented by the belly and the thighs of bronze. And then again in chapter 7, represented by the leopard with four wings and four heads. So now again a third time we meet, we meet this empire. Daniel notes five features of this particular beast, this goat. Number one, the goat came from the west swiftly. Where did the Persians come from? East. Now notice, the goat comes from the west. Okay, Greece is Western Europe, right? Persia is in the east. And so you now see the goat coming from the west. And he comes, so we're told, swiftly crossing the entire earth without even touching the ground. The, the picture is of conquest so rapid, so fast. Uh, was Alexander's movement in, in armies that it was as if they didn't even touch the ground. Alexander conquered the known world within a span of three short years. His armies did not stop. The second thing they were told is the goat was filled with rage. He was filled with rage, especially as he attacked the two-horned ram. Within two years of becoming king, Alexander launched his fierce attack against Persia, probably in response to the Persians' incursions and attack against Greece earlier on. So now he's getting them back. And he is do so, doing so with, uh, with especially uh, uh, fierce attacks. Third thing that Daniel notes is the goat attacked the ram with intense power. When, he, when the goat struck the ram that had the two horns, this simply represented Alexander destroying uh, the entire Medo-Persian empire, both segments of that empire, trampling it into the ground, destroying it completely. It was helpless before the raging Alexander. No other power on earth could, sur- could save the Persian Empire from the Greeks and from Alexander. They were completely, completely obliterated. The fourth thing that we're told is that Greece now becomes a great empire under Alexander the Great, conquering most of the known world of that day. All, Alexander marched completely on into India and conquered whole portions of India. That's how far east he went. But due to his successes, history records that he became increasingly prideful and arrogant, exalting himself to the place of gods, as many of these ancient leaders would do, demanding to be worshipped, demanding to be exalted, as leaders do today. You know, they exalt themselves. And uh, Alexander required his officials to bow down, worship him as a god. And uh, this, his own army, rebelled at doing. They refused to worship him. And this is where his, his army began to slow down and began to stop. At the height of the goat's power, we're told, the large horn was broken off. The large horn would simply represent Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great died suddenly. 
He died suddenly at the age of 33. Partly from exhaustion, partly from the debauched life that he led. It's been, it's, it, it, most of the historians record uh, that I read that he died in a, a drunken stupor of a raging fever at the age of 33. What a horrible way to die. All alone, basically. History records that after his death, various leaders of Greece made attempts to hold the empire together, but they were unsuccessful. Verse 8 tells us that the large horn was replaced by four prominent horns. And this means that four of Alexander's generals divided the empire among themselves. General Cassander ruled in Greece and Macedonia. Lysimachus ruled in Thrace and Asia Minor. That's predominantly what we know today as Turkey and the the coast there. Seleucius ruled Syria, Babylon, and much of the Middle East. And Ptolemy, the fourth general, ruled Egypt and Palestine. Now the latter two kings, Seleucius and Ptolemy, uh, these were these ruled these areas that sandwiched Israel. So they're going to be particularly significant in the history of Israel also, as we shall see in the future. I think an important fact to note, and we alluded to this already, is that God used both the Greek and the Roman Empire to prepare the way for the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. As Alexander conquered Nation after nation, he was able to spread Greek culture and Greek language. The Greek language throughout the world. And the common Greek language was known as Koine Greek. And that's the the, the language that the New Testament largely is written in. And of course, after the fall of Greece, uh, the Roman Empire ruled uh, ruled the world and uh, Rome demanded complete allegiance. It ruled with, uh, with just raw power, oppression, slavery, and and all that, however, led to, among other things, what's known as the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And this allowed, in turn, people to travel freely without threat of being harassed, uh, robbed, and, and such, because there were Roman garrisons all over the Roman Empire, and there was law and order, if you will. So this allowed for people to travel freely. Rome uh, built roads uh, they, they constructed lots and lots of roads throughout the, uh, this new Roman Empire. And that, again, allowed for the ease of travel and the relative freedom of, of, the, of the transfer of ideas and philosophies. The scriptures teach that God was preparing the world uh, for the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4, 4, at the fullness of time, when the time was ready, when the time had fully come, Paul says, now the Savior could be sent into the world. So you see, all these nations and all this that had been happening, the Jews were back in Palestine under the Persians. The Greeks had come to rule, and they'd brought this language and become the language of the day, the lingua franca, if you will. The Romans come, and, and they settle all this, and they bring peace, and now there's a transfer of ideas. The environment is absolutely perfect according to God's timetable. Isn't that marvelous? God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. When Jesus came into the world, the Jews were living with a sense of messianic expectation. They knew they were living in the time 
because they'd studied Daniel. They knew Messiah was coming. When Jesus shows up, we read about it in in the Gospels, and more particularly in uh, the Gospel of John, when when Nicodemus interviews him. He asks him, are you the one we're waiting for? There was a, a high heightened expectation of the Messiah. God's timing is absolutely perfect. God's timing is perfect in our lives, is it not? Do we tend to grow a little impatient? God, where are you? Come on, God, I'm waiting. Let's move. He's moving. It's, it's, like, it's like he's got all these pieces on this chessboard. He's moving them, moving them, moving them. And he's moving them to that point of checkmate, isn't he? And we'll all go, wow, wow, what an awesome thing. Both on, 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 a, on a worldwide scale and a scale in our own life. I suspect that for most of us, if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you, you, you look at your life and you see how God is moving only in retrospect, don't you? You go, oh, wow. How did I miss that? Duh. And you, and you rejoice because, because you see God clearly at work in your life. And he's, he's, now he's bringing about some wonderful, miraculous thing. Some of us would say, could we have done this another way? Remember Jesus asked that, didn't he? In the garden? He said, can we do this another way? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So with with confidence, you and I must have confidence that God's timing is perfect. His will is perfect. We can trust him. He ordains the future. We see it through Daniel. God is revealing to Daniel, look, I'm in control of all of human history. Look at... Now, the critics of the book of Daniel, many of you know, the critics of the book of Daniel, the liberal theologians, look back because they don't believe in the miraculous. They don't believe in prophecy as a, real, as a real spiritual dynamic. And they're looking back and say, the precision with which these documents are written and the accuracy with which they reflect must mean that Daniel wrote after the events and just wrote down recorded history. Boy, what a letdown, huh? No miraculous. No prophecy, no power, no hope. No, we believe it's prophecy. Daniel said, I have visions. God showed me what's going on in the future to the very end. We win. Somebody say hallelujah. (laughs) Oh, my. Isn't God awesome? He's absolutely awesome. You see, when Jesus came, it was far easier to carry the message of the gospel to the world due to that common language of Greek and due to the peace and freedom of travel and the sharing of ideas afforded by Roman rule. In his vision, Daniel then saw a little horn arise from one of the horns or one of the divisions of that Macedonian empire. This would be from the Seleucid dynasty, of which Seleucius ruled from Syria. The little horn, we know from history, not identified here by name, but from history. Clearly, we know the little horn was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And we're going to talk more about him in the future. He ruled Syria from the years 175 B.C. to 163 B.C. He was the son of Antiochus the Great. Antiochus Epiphanes was also sometimes called Epimanus. 
Epimanus meant the madman. He was one of the most despicable, savage rulers in history, without a doubt. In fact, Daniel saw the terrifying evil and suffering that this tyrant would afflict upon so many people, in particular those who called on the name of the Lord, Israel. Daniel would describe all the shocking details about Antiochus Epiphanes. And we're going to look at those next time. But I want to remind you, we cannot help but understand that Daniel's visions touch, touch these things. Daniel's visions speak to the reality that always, as, as, even as we look at life, although it looks as if the world is under the power of human evil running rampant, although it looks that way, although it looks like the world is not at all under God's control, remember, looks can be deceiving. God is in control. He's in control. This this is one of the great issues and questions that people always pose. If God is so good, if he's so powerful, how come there's so much evil? It's It's the issue of the problem of evil. What do we deal with that? It seems to be a lie to say that God is sovereign, in control. It looks like he isn't. But again, looks are deceiving because he clearly is in control. And it's a testimony of that from the scriptures and from these visions of the future that he gives us. Another important dynamic is that God fights for his people. He fights for his people against the evil that oppresses them. Whether that evil be external enemies or whether that evil be the sin that remains in our hearts. God is fighting. It's his power at work in me that frees me. It's his power at work in me. God does this. I don't free myself. I'm shackled. The chains of bondage have crippled my life. It's God who sets me free. It's God who heals me. It's God who gives me hope and life. And he does so when we call upon him. And we call upon him in sincere repentance. Beloved, one of the themes of the book of Daniel is simply this. It's repentance that leads to deliverance. Repentance that leads to deliverance. Are you shackled? Are you bound up? Are you, are you gripped with fear? Is your life immobilized? Are you in bondage? It's repentance that leads to deliverance. Repentance. Repentance. It's repentance that leads to salvation. You can't be saved unless you first repent. And repentance, as I said initially, this this whole idea of redemption, the fruit of repentance, results in a life that is radically different, radically uh, for God. More and more and more and more. We find ourselves, it's not about us anymore. It's not about me anymore. It's not about what I want. It's what God wants. I'm given to him radically. You know, I read read an article this last week, and it was really, uh, really shocking. It was written by the the president of the uh, 
Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the world. Al Mohler is the president of the denomination. He made this shocking statement. And it just took my breath away. I couldn't, I couldn't hardly get, out, get my mind around it. He said, his belief... Now, here's a guy that's been pastoring and leading and shepherding and overseeing and all this for years and years and years. And he says... He believes that fully 50% of the people sitting in churches today are not saved. 50%. I, I, I just couldn't believe I couldn't believe Here's a credible, reputable Christian leader making that kind of statement. 50% are not saved. They're just attenders. They're, they're pretenders. They're... Professors only. That's a scary thought, isn't it? And then as I reflected on that, I thought, do do I see this reflected in the scriptures? My mind immediately went to Matthew chapter 13. The parable of the soils and the sower. And he talks about four kinds of soil. And there was only one kind of soil out of the four that bore fruit. He said the seed is sown on all these kinds of ground and and where it's not immediately received, the devil comes and steals it away, the word. Then he talks about the shallow soil, the the rocky soil. There's not much depth to it and and the the seed goes down, but because there's no depth, it it immediately springs up, but but doesn't last when when the pressures of life attack it. No depth. And then he talks about the the, the soil that's mixed with thorns and thistles and the, the seeds grow up along with it, but the thorns and the thistles choke out the word. And Jesus likens those things to the, to the cares of this world and how we can get caught up in the cares of the world. You know, and as I was reflecting, I thought, that, I thought oh my gosh, not our church, our church, our church, everyone's saved. <laughs> I'd be a fool to believe that. I'd be a fool with that. There are people sitting here this morning. You're not saved. I don't say that to be mean. I'm just saying, odds are, there are people sitting here this morning who aren't saved. All you have to do is look at your life. Are you, are you fully given to Christ? Or is it, are you just being religious? Are you just kind of playing the game? You know the lingo, you come to church, but when it comes to all the things that are, that are the, the, the accoutrements, if you will, of, 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 a, of a real faith, I'm involved in community, I'm serving God, I'm committed, I'm, I'm doing everything that God calls me to do. Not because I have to, because I want to, because it's a function of a brand new nature that's been given to me. Or am I just sitting on the periphery, kind of enjoying the show? You see, repentance leads to deliverance. All of us, Jesus says, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. As believers, we have a great comfort. The Bible presents a great comfort to us, and that great comfort is found in the fact that God has won the victory regardless of the appearances. He has won the victory. 
And he won the victory where? On that cross. That's why we have that cross up there. To remind us. And notice the cross is what? Empty. It's symbolic. He's no longer there. He's moved on. He was buried. He rose after three days. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is awaiting the fulfillment of all things before he comes and gets us. That's our hope. God has won the victory. He's won it at the cross. And history's victorious end, Daniel tells us, is certain. We are on the winning side. (laughs) How do you know? Is it just an intellectual exercise? How do you know you're on the winning side? Because I am radically given to God. Just like I was radically opposed to Him, I'm radically given to Him. More and more and more and more. God, take me, take me, use me. Amen. Amen. Shall we pray? God, thank you. Use us, O oh God. Turn our hearts towards you. I pray, Lord, for anybody here this morning who may not really know you. God, you know every heart, every condition of every life. And I ask, God, that you would pour out your spirit. Grant us repentance. Turn our hearts fully towards you. Save us, Lord. Save us. Keep your heads bowed just for a moment or two. If there's any doubt in your mind this morning of whether or not you are a believer, a true believer, I want to give you an opportunity to settle that issue. It comes down to genuine repentance. The Bible says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. You have to really, really, truly be sorry for your sins. It's that kind of sorrow that drives you to repentance. And without that, there is no salvation. If Al Mohler is right, and 50% of the people sitting in churches today are not saved, it would behoove us, as the Apostle Paul says, to check ourselves out, to make sure that we are of the faith. Examine our life, examine our motives, examine our heart. All you have to do is ask yourself, am I, am I really abandoned to God? Am I really abandoned to God is my, with my, my life, my possessions? Am I committed to Him? Do I really desire His will more than anything else? Because that's a mark of a transformed person. If those things aren't true in your life, you have to say, I, I must not be a believer. You may know the lingo. You may, you may know uh, chapter and verse. So do the cults. The cults can quote the Bible better than most Christians. That doesn't mean they're saved. It's what's, where's the direction of your life? If that describes you and you want to settle that issue this morning, you're ready to make a decision. I'm talking about a decision then I want you to signal me. I want you to raise your hand while everybody else's heads are bowed. And just raise your hand. Pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm settling an issue this morning. I am for Jesus. Okay, I see your hand. God bless you down there in the middle. Anybody else? Just lift your hand now. Go. Anybody? I see your hand over there. This hand on the aisle. Good. Anybody else? Just lift your hand now. Okay, right down here. Good. I see your hand. Okay. One last call. One last call. I see that hand. Okay, God bless you. And down here on the aisle, I see your hand too. Good. 
in your hand. Okay, good. God bless you. One last time. Anybody else? Here's what I want you to do. Right where you're sitting, do business with God. God, I'm sorry. Truly sorry for my sin, for my rebellion, for my selfishness, for my self-absorption, for my lies. For the ways I've deceived myself, I've deceived others. I confess my lusting to you, my arrogance, my foolishness. I repent of those things, and I ask you to forgive me. I put my faith fully in Jesus, in his death on that cross, in my place. I thank you for bringing me here this morning, bringing me to this point of decision, and I commit my life to you. Take me, use me, and I pray your will be done more and more and more in my life from this day forward. Thank you, Father. And I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen? Amen. God bless you. You raise your hand, tell somebody you did that. Tell somebody you raise your hand. Jesus said, if you won't confess me before men, I'll not confess you before my Father in heaven. So gird up your loins and say, you know what? I just prayed that prayer and asked Jesus to save me. So tell your neighbor. Okay? Share real quickly with your neighbor one thing that you learned this morning that was helpful to you, meaningful to you. Pronounce a blessing on your neighbor if you would. And if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. And let's stand together and sing his praises one more time before we dismiss. Mm -hmm.